Thank you for listening to Devoted. We meet every week on Tuesdays at 7 p.m. at Calvary Chapel, East Anaheim. With the 21st article, and so tonight we're going to talk about what is worship? Like, what is genuine worship? Why do we need to worship? How do we worship? Why is worship so important? And questions like that. Uh, and so the, the place I wanted us to start is in John uh, chapter 4. And Jesus meets this woman at a well in Samaria. Remember, he says, I must needs go through Samaria. Uh, Samaria was in between uh, Nazareth and Galilee and Jerusalem. So every year, three times a year, Jesus would have to go either through or around Samaria to get to Jerusalem for the feasts. And then same thing going back. Uh, the Jews typically didn't go through Samaria. They would walk around it. But Jesus purposely went through Samaria, something that Jews wouldn't do, to meet with this woman. This woman was a Samaritan. Remember, the Samaritans came from uh, kind of a, a mixed breed. Remember, the Assyrians came, and they took the northern tribes captive to Assyria. And they not only took the Jewish people, to Assyria, they brought their own people to live in the territory of Israel. And they started to mix in with the people that stayed in Israel. They would get married and start having kids, and their kids would be half Samaritan, or not half Samaritan, half Assyrian and half Jewish. And it became this race known as the Samaritans. The Jewish people despised the Samaritans. So the Samaritan people came up with their own place to worship. They, uh, on Mount Gerizim, they uh, built their own temple. They would have their own worship, their own sacrifices. Uh, in 2018, I was in Israel uh, around the time of the Passover. And the Samaritans actually celebrate their Passover uh, about a month after the Jewish people do. And I actually got to go up to Mount Gerizim and uh, observe them celebrating their Passover. And this little community, less than a thousand uh, Samaritans exist today, but they celebrate as close as they can to a biblical Passover. Literally, they would bring, every family would bring out a one-year-old lamb that was, you know, pretty little lamb, and go out there, and the dad would put his hand on it and confess the sins of the family, and then they would slaughter it and cook it and eat it and all of that. Um, but I like to say they have their, their own way of worshiping, their own place of worshiping. And remember, Jesus goes and he meets this woman who's at the well at the middle of the day, which was weird. Women wouldn't go to draw water in the middle of the day. That's the hottest part of the day. They would usually go early in the morning uh, when the sun is just barely coming up or late at night at dusk when the sun's going down because it's cooler. And they would travel in packs. They would travel together. But I, I think the, you know, the observation here is is that this woman was kind of an outcast in the city. The, the people of Samaria didn't like her. The other women didn't like her because, well, she was the town, I don't know what word you want to use, but <laughs> the one that all the guys went to, right? And, and I think that's evident, too, because when she finally meets Jesus and she runs back to tell everybody that, hey, I think I met the Messiah, who does she go to? She goes to the men. She doesn't go to the women. Anyway, so Jesus meets with her and starts asks her for a drink of water, and she's like, you know, uh, 
you don't have anything to draw with. And he's like, you know, if you knew who I was, you would ask me for water, and I'd give you a drink of living water. If, you know, you drink from that water, you're going to thirst again. You drink from the water that I'm going to give you, and, and, and you'll never thirst again. And that sounded appealing, right? Now I don't have to walk out here in the middle of the day, you know, in this embarrassing time and feel this shame every day to get water. And Jesus is like, hey, you know what? Call your husband. <laughs> you know? and, and she's like, I, I don't have a husband. And, and, and he's like, you, you said what? You've had five husbands, and the one you have now isn't your husband. You're shacking up with him. And immediately she changes the subject, right? She says, hey, <laughs> I perceive you're a prophet. You know, where's, where's the right place to worship? And Jesus says this uh, in verse 20, or she says in verse Sorry, it's verse 19. She says, the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, Gerizim. And here people say that in Jerusalem is the place where you ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when you neither worship in this mountain nor in Jerusalem where you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. We don't really think about that too often. You know, what is worship, and how do we define worship? But I think it's... a uh, something we should think about, as we're going to see. Worship is very, very important. Um, but, yeah, let's dive into the study. Um, let me pray for us first, though. God, I just want to thank you that we're here. I thank you that you've given us your word. I thank you that you gave us your son, uh, that gave us access to your word, Lord. And, uh, I thank you that he's our mediator and that we're in him and and because of that, we could truly worship you, Lord. I pray that this would be an act of worship. I pray that you'd glorify your son through it, that you'd speak to us, and that we would be changed by your word, that we'd become better worshipers through your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Uh, I'll read the verses again, starting in verse 19. The woman said to him, Sir, we perceive, or I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped in this mountain. And you people say that in Jerusalem is a place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. Jesus says that we need to worship in spirit and in truth. What does he mean by that? Well, we need to worship. Uh, true worship happens in the spiritual realm. God is spirit, and worship is connecting with God and honoring and glorifying God. And to do that, we need to do that in the spiritual realm. We need to be filled with the Spirit, and, uh, and and connecting with God in the spiritual realm. And we need to do it in truth, right? We need to do it according to the Word of God and according to the way 
what God has prescribed for us to worship him. Not all worship is equal, right? Remember, God received Abel's sacrifice, but he didn't receive Cain's sacrifice because Cain didn't come in spirit and in truth. The word worship comes from an old English word, uh, Skype, which means worth-ship. It's to assign worth to something. Uh, In worship, we're displaying how worthy or how great God or the subject of our worship is. The idea is is to uh, show how magnificent, how worthy God is of our allegiance and our praise. The Lexham Theological Wordbook defines worship this way. Worship is the reverential response of creation to the all-encompassing magnificence of God. I really like the way that John Stott, he was an English preacher, the way that he defined worship. He said, worship is the submission of all of our nature to God. It is the quickening of conscience by his holiness, the nourishment of mind with his truth, the purifying of imagination by his beauty, the opening of the heart to his love, the surrender of will to his purpose, and all of this gathered up in adoration, the most selfless emotion of which our nature is capable and therefore the chief remedy for all self-centeredness, which is our original sin and the source of all actual sin. Yes, worship in spirit and truth is the way to, is the, way to the solution of perplexity and the liberation from sin. Carl Barth said, Christian worship is the most monumentous and most urgent and most glorious action that can take place in the human life. It's our, our greatest honor is to worship the Lord. It's the greatest deed that we could do is to worship the Lord. The, the perfect picture of worship is Jesus, right? We get the perfect picture of worship in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four Gospels. Looking at Jesus' life, we see perfect worship. It's what, it, what we were created to do. In fact, everybody worships something. Uh, William Blake said, we must all have some religion. If he has not the religion of Jesus, he will have the religion of Satan. And we elect, elect the synagogue of Satan, calling the prince of the world God and destroying all who do not worship Satan under the name of God. So we're all going to worship something. In fact, God commands us to worship him. In Deuteronomy 6, verse 13, God says, You shall fear only the Lord your God, and you shall worship him and swear by his name. That command, you shall worship him, is an imperative mood. It's a command. God is commanding everyone, everywhere, to worship him. Someone say, say, hey, that's, you know, the the Jewish Bible. That's for Christians. That's for believers to worship. That's your religion. Can I remind you that that same verse, Jesus quotes to the devil when the devil's tempting him for 40 days and 40 nights. He says, hey, haven't you heard that you should worship the Lord and him alone shall you worship? Now, I'm pretty sure that Satan was neither a Jew nor a follower of Jesus. And Jesus is telling Satan that you should only 
worship the Lord. And in John 8, Jesus shows us that everyone has one of two fathers. Either God is your father or the devil is your father. In John 8, 44, Jesus says, you are of your father, the devil. He says this to these Pharisees. And you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature. For he is a liar and the father of lies. And so he's saying, hey, if you aren't worshiping God, if you're not in God, then you're worshiping Satan. And Jesus told Satan that you need to worship only God. Right? So we can say that the whole world is commanded to worship God. You know, I saw a church bulletin the other day. It said this. It says, you aren't too bad to come in, and you're not too good to stay out. It's essentially saying, hey, this is for everybody. No matter how good you are or how bad you are as a person, you are designed to worship the Lord. You need to come and worship the Lord. One pastor said all other religions are independent to a certain degree of their founders because these founders were nothing more than their first confessors. But Jesus wasn't the first Christian. He is not, or he was or is the Christ. He's not the subject but the object of religion. Christianity is not the religion of Jesus, but it is Christ worship. The whole point of being a Christian is to worship Christ. And admittedly, worship is a huge subject. The entire Bible tells us that God exists, and he's a holy God who deserves to be worshipped. The Bible could be said it's really a book of worship. It's a book of God showing us who he is and people worshipping him in light of that. It's teaching us how to worship. So this whole Bible is about that. It's a, a huge subject. I've got a, a biblical theology of, on worship that's talking about all that the Bible says about worship, and it's over a thousand pages long. So we could spend months studying the subject of worship. In fact, there are seminaries that have entire uh, semester classes on this subject. So I was kind of hard-pressed to think about how do we present this, how do we talk about worship and, and, and get it down into you know one, maybe two studies. And the easiest way to, to kind of organize my thought in this discussion, I thought, was first of all to look at the biblical words for worship, especially the, the Hebrew words in the Old Testament, and see what that tells us about what worship is. And then to kind of go through the confession and what it says about worship and, and, and see how we're to practice worship or how God is telling us to worship. And the reason I said the Old Testament words is because uh, the Old Testament eventually was translated into Greek. That's the, the Septuagint. And then they used that same Greek, those same Septuagint words that were translated from Hebrew into Greek in the New Testament. So there's a lot of crossover between the Old Testament words for worship and the New Testament words for worship. And we'll see some of that. And might I might add one more thing. I alerted to the fact that we are all worshipers. Whether you're a Christian or a pagan, you worship something or someone. So these terms for worship, they could use, be used both in a 
a positive sense and in a negative sense. They're, they're spoken of, of, of people worshiping the true God and also of people worshiping false gods and made-up gods, the Baals and the Ashtaroths and stuff like that. So just because the word, say, kraskuneo, which means to, to bow before it or to kiss forwards is used, doesn't necessarily mean that it's speaking of general, genuine worship. Uh, it, it's the object of that that defines whether it's genuine worship. Am I bowing down to Yahweh or am I bowing down to the Baals and the Ashtaroths is the idea. But for whatever way, it says we need to see how the Bible defines worship. And for number one, uh, so to do what, again, we're going to go through some of these words from the Old Testament and see what they tell us about what worship is. And the first one I want us to see is we need to see biblical worship includes our posture. So throw in the word posture. The first Hebrew word uh, for worship, the first term I want us to see, the most used one is the word hanah. And it refers to bowing down in an act of worship, reverence, or respect. Now, the Greek version of this word is proskuneo, which means to, to bow before or to kiss towards, to pay homage to. So these terms have to do with our, our, our posture before God. And uh, our outer posture, right, our, 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 what we're doing with our body and with our mouth, really reflects the posture of our heart. Jesus says it's out of the abundance of the mouth that the heart, it's out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks, right? So, so the way that we talk, the way that we move, uh, that reveals the reality of our heart. So it's not just bowing down to something or, or that. It, it, that is a picture of, of really what our heart posture is. So all this about the posture, it, it really has to do with our in Second Chronicles chapter seven verse three, it says this. This is talking about when, uh, when the temple is finally made by Solomon and it's being dedicated. It says this. And all the sons of Israel, seeing the fire come down and the glory of the Lord upon the house, they bowed down on the pavement with their faces to the ground, and they worshipped and gave praise to the Lord, saying, He truly He is good. Truly His loving kindness is everlasting. So out of a response for God providing a place for them to worship and God's spirit, his presence coming and manifesting itself in this miraculous way in the Shekinah glory of God, they bow down to it and worship him. In Leviticus 26, it says, You shall not make for yourselves idols, nor shall you set up for yourselves an image or a sacred pillar. Nor shall you place a figured stone in your land to bow down to it, for I the Lord, am the Lord your God. Right? So, so again, you, you could bow down to Yahweh or you could bow down to an idol, to a stone. And God's saying, hey, you, you, you're not to bow down to any of those things. It, it, it's only to me that you are to show that kind of worship to in this publication called In Touch and Ride, this guy, George Vanderbilt, he wrote this. A young stranger to the Alps was making his first climb accompanied by two stalwart guides. It was a steep, hazardous ascent. 
but he felt secure with one guy ahead and one guy following. For hours they climbed, and now breathless they reached for those rocks protruding through the snow uh, above them the summit. The guide ahead wished to let the stranger have the first glorious view of heaven and earth, and moved aside to let him go first. Forgetting the gales that would blow across the summit rocks, the young man leaped up to his feet, but the chief guide dragged him down. On your knees, sir, he shouted. You're never safe here except on your knees. And, and, and that's the idea, right? As Christians, we have the word of God. We have the, uh, you know, we, we have the revelation of God. We, we can see God. We can see the things that God is doing. But we're not safe unless we're in the right posture, unless we have the right heart position before God. We're not truly worshiping him, right? Ananias and Sapphira, they gave quite a bit of money to the church. Right? In any other sense, that would be considered worship. Giving is a form of worship. Right? But they didn't do it the right way. Their, their, their posture of their heart wasn't right before God. They tried to keep some back. They tried to make themselves look more spiritual than they really were. They were being hypocritical. And, and God not only didn't receive their worship, God judged them and smoked them dead there on the spot. So, so it's a it's a really dangerous place to be to be with God's people and God's presence and not have the right position, which is a, a heart of reverence that's bowed to God and submitted to God. Right. So the first thing, speaking of worship, it has to do with the position of our heart uh, being bowed in, in reverence and submission to the Lord. Number two, biblical worship includes our words. So fill in the word words. The next term, the Hebrew term used to speak of worship is the word halal. It means to praise. The word hallelujah comes from this root. Hallelujah means to, to praise the Lord, to praise Yah, Yahweh. Halal is the act of listing and celebrating the positive attributes or actions of someone, usually God. Right. Uh, Psalm 22, verses 2 and 3. I will tell of your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you, you who fear the Lord. Praise him, all you descendants of Jacob. Glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you descendants of Israel. Right. We're to sing or say praise to God. Now this word halal, this praise in the it's, it's usually in response to one of two things. One, God's saving acts. You know, God will perform a mighty act and save someone or this group of people or deliver them from the enemy, and they'll sing praise and praise God. All throughout the Old Testament we have this, where the, the children of Israel are praising God for delivering them from the Egyptians or from the Midians or from the Philistines or you know, from whatever enemy they had. The other aspect of praise is praising God for who he is, for his attributes, right? And we see that again throughout the, the whole Old Testament, especially in the Psalms, Psalms, right? We see them praising God for his mercy and his loving kindness, for being gracious and being compassionate, you know, for his characteristic. 
Now, this uh, could be said in, in, a, in a good sense, like I just said. God has saved you, and they're praising him for his saving act and for his attributes. But it could also be, uh, should be done in, in, in negative situations, too. Right? We're, we're to praise God in all times. And Psalm 56 is a great example of this. In Psalm 56, uh, David writes this in response to being taken captive by the Philistines in Gath. David's on the run from Saul and Saul's men, and he goes and he hides out with the enemy, the Philistines in Gath, and he gets caught, right? And, And David writes Psalm 56 in response to that. And he says this. He says, Be gracious to me, O God, for man has trampled upon me. Fighting all day long, he has, for he oppresses me. My foes have trampled upon me all day long. For there are many who fight proudly against me. When I'm afraid, I'm going to put my trust in you, in God whose word I praise, in God I have put my trust. I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? So David, he's having a pretty bad day. And he's saying, you know what? I'm going to praise God. And he's singing praise to God. And he's directing his trust to God. So it's not always, you know, in a response to some good situation. Now, the New Testament version of this word halal is the Greek word eulogeo. And it's the word that we get uh, eulogy from, to speak a good word, to bless or to praise. But it also carries the idea of showing gratitude to God or receiving favor from God. The idea is God has blessed me, and I'm going to praise him. I had been uh, wanting this Bible for a long time. I think some of you guys know I have this obsession with Bibles, and I collect these really expensive, premium, high-end Bibles. And there was one that came out a while ago, and it was uh, put out, It was actually designed by John MacArthur, who's my favorite preacher, and it's called the Preacher's Bible. And they sold out really fast, and then they were selling on the secondary market, which was super expensive. And I never thought I would get one. And anyways, I ended up securing a copy of one to this week, a brand new copy for actually less than retail. Right? And that is worthy of me praising God. I, I've been so excited. I've been telling everybody, hey, God, God brought me this thing I've been wanting. That is an example of that. One of the ways we can yuligeo is to laud or magnify the mighty deeds of God. We boast about God is the idea. A, a great example of this in the New Testament is Zechariah. Remember Zechariah? Who was he married to? The priest. He was married to Elizabeth, and Elizabeth was barren. Right? They had no kids. And he goes in... Uh, He's a priest, and his lot is taken to light the incense in the temple. And he goes in to, to light the incense, and an angel, Gabriel, shows up to him, right, and tells him, hey, your wife's going to be pregnant. She's going to have a kid. And he's like, hey, how do I know that's true? And he's like, I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. If that's not enough for you, my presence isn't enough for you to believe that, you're going to be mute. You're not going to be able to speak until that baby is born. And John wasn't. Or, or was it, I'm sorry, Zechariah wasn't. He wasn't able to speak. He was a mute. And then the baby was born, and they're trying to decide, hey, what should it be called and that? And the, 
And, and the mom says it should be John. And, and they're like, well, you don't have any relatives named John. Why would you name him John? And then they ask Zechariah, hey, what do you want to call him? And he gets a board, and he says his name is going to be John. And just then his mouth is open. And what does he do? He starts praising God. He says this. He says, verse <laughs> 67, Luke chapter 1. And his father Zacharias was filled with the Holy Spirit and he prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord, God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people. And he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant. And he has spoken by the mouth of his holy prophets from the world. Salvation for our, from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show mercy towards our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to Abraham our father to grant to us that we, be, being rescued from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And our child will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare his ways." to give to his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God with which the sunrise from on high will visit us to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. This is a great example of Yulegeo. In James, we see that th this is the proper use of our tongue. Right? It, it is to use it to, to, to bless God. Right? He says, hey, <laughs> in, uh, in James 3.9, with our tongue, this, this two-edged sword, this, uh, this fire, he says, with it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. Right? So we see that the proper use of our tongue is to use it to sing praises or say praise to, to, to bless God. This blessing God is also a form of thanksgiving. It, it, it really is. In Matthew chapter 14, remember Jesus, he's going to feed the 5,000 with the first century Lunchable. He's got the five little crackers and the, the, the two sardines, right? And, and what's the first thing he does? He took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking toward heaven, he blessed the food, and breaking the loaves, he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. That word, the food, it's in italics in my Bible, because that's a supplied word. It's not in the original manuscript. It just says that he blessed, and breaking the loaves, he gave them to the disciples. Right? No doubt he was blessing God for providing the food that was going to feed everybody. So we need to worship God by the posture of our hearts, first of all. And second of all, we need to worship him by the way we speak. Number three, biblical worship includes our movement. Fill in the word movement. The next term, Hebrew term I want us to see is the term kurab. Q-U-R-A-B. It means to draw near or to approach. It refers to the idea of moving in the direction of someone or something, to bringing something near, including bringing an offering to God. In the Old Testament, to approach God 
they had to bring an offering to the priest and have it sacrificed. And, you know, they had to go through that ritual. And that is the idea. In Leviticus 9.7, it says, Then Moses said to Aaron, Come near to the altar, so it's that drawing near to God, and offer the sin offering and the burnt offering, that you may make atonement for yourself and the people, then make the offering of the people that you might make atonement for them just as the Lord had commanded. Now, in terms of sacrifice and offering, this was usually performed by Levitical priests on behalf of the people, and in doing so, they brought the people closer to God. Uh, We see this in Numbers, chapter 16, verses 8 and 9. It says, Then Moses said to Korah, Hear now, you sons of Levi, is it enough? For you that the God of Israel has separated you from the rest of the congregation of Israel to bring you near to himself, to do the service of the tabernacle of the Lord and to stand before the congregation to minister to them. So the the priest is to take the offering and bring it and sacrifice it on the altar. And in doing so, in going before the people and and pursuing God, they're going to bring the nation closer to God. They're going to move the people closer to God. So the idea is is that we could worship God by pursuing him, by seeking to be as close to him as possible, by pursuing a more intimate relationship with him, by seeking to be like him, by conforming our life to his word in a way of worship. So again, we worship through the posture of our heart. We worship through our words but we also worship God by seeking a more intimate walk with the Lord. Number four, biblical worship has to do with our perspective, from the word perspective. The next term is the term room, R-U-M. It's not rum. You can't worship with rum. Well, you can worship. You just can't worship God with rum. But room, it means to lift up or exalt. The word room often is used to describe the raising of a person or God's status due to an accomplishment or attribute. We're seeing something that God is doing and we're lifting him up. He's becoming greater in our sight. You know, uh, another ministry that I oversee here at the church is called the Salt and Light Ministry. And we uh, have a small little leadership team, and we've been meeting for a little while. And and we've been praying that God would open doors for us to be able to minister to this body in ways that uh, help them to be able to use politics and things like that in a way that honors God, in a way that's worship. But we've also been praying that God would open a door for us to be able to minister to politicians and to the people that are in power and to speak truth to them and hopefully be able to make an impact in the community and the area in that way. And we've been praying about that and thinking of ways that we could do that. And out of the blue, I get a text message from this guy named Kurt Pringle. Kurt Pringle used to be the mayor of Anaheim. Now he runs this political consultant firm in Anaheim and works with politicians and really uh, influential people to try to get done what they're trying to get done. 
Anyways, he, he sent me this text message and says, hey, yeah, I'm Kurt Pringle, this and that. Would you meet with me? Would you come to my office and talk to me on Friday? And I'm like, sure. I have no idea why, but I, I, I go and I meet with him. And I start talking to him. He's like, yeah, I just wanted, you know, I keep hearing about you. I wanted to meet you and see who you are and things like that. And so I talked to him for about an hour and a half. And and then I leave. And I, I leave his office. And I'm like, what was that about? That was kind of weird. And I was thinking, like, he wanted me to run for some kind of office or something. Well, later that night, I get a, another text message from him. And he says, hey, I'm starting this Bible study at my office. And I'm going to have all these politicians, local politicians come and other just really influential people in the city. Would you mind coming and, and teaching me? And I, and I was like, uh, sure. You know, but I was like, what an answer to prayer. Like God is, is, you know, looks like he's opening this door so that these connections that we've been trying to figure out a way to make or we could, you know, be able to minister to these politicians and speak church to them, that God is doing that. And because of that, I, I started saying, wow, God, you're, you're amazing. And, and, and my perspective of God got bigger and bigger. I started saying, wow, God, you are doing amazing things. And, and that's really the idea of, of Rome. It, it, it's, it's exalting the Lord, right? God became bigger in my sight, and because of that, I'm exalting him with my speech. I'm going around telling everybody, how great my God is. You know, after the children of Israel were delivered by God uh, through the, the plagues and then the parting of the sea, Moses uh, writes a, a, a song. He, he, uh, and it's a, a great example of what this, this womb is. In Exodus chapter 15, we have this, it's called the Song of Moses. I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'll just read the first few verses because it's a great picture of what I'm talking about. Then Moses and the sons of Israel sang this song to the Lord and said, I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and its rider he has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father is God, and I will extol him. The Lord is our warrior. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has cast into the sea. And the choicest of all the officers he has drowned in the Red Sea. You see, God was exalted in the eyes of Moses that day when he led the children of Israel through the sea. And because of that, Moses then started exalting God. Psalm 99.5, exalt the Lord our God and worship at his footstool. Holy is he. So we could worship God through our posture, number one. Number two, through our words. Number three, by pursuing to move closer to him. And number four, through exalting him. Number five, biblical worship includes music. Fill in the word music. The term here is zamar, Z-A-M-A-R. It means to sing or to play an instrument. Judges chapter 5, verse 3. Hear, O kings, give ear, O rulers. To the Lord I will sing. I will sing praise to the Lord, the God of Israel. Psalm 33, verses 2 and 3. Give thanks to the Lord with a lyre. Sing praises to him. 
with a harp and ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully a shout of joy. Remember when Saul, when the spirit of the Lord left Saul and this evil spirit came and started tormenting him? David would come and he would play the harp. He would play worship music on the harp and it would soothe Saul. Right? David, worshiping in the presence of Saul, gave Saul peace. That's how powerful worship is. Or music is to worship. But, but really, all music is worship. Music is worship. The question really is, who are you worshiping with your music? The music you're listening to, the music you're singing. We need to remember that pre-fall, Satan was the leader, the worship leader in heaven. Right? He was the anointed cherub. His, his job was to lead heaven in worship of God. And after the fall, he's become the worship leader of this world. Right now he's leading the, this world as the prince of the power of the air to worship anything other than God <laughs> is the idea. But Satan is a worship leader. And, and, and if you think about it, all worship, all music is some form of worship still. There's music that we sing that brings honor and glory and is a form of worship to God. It doesn't have to be praise music. In, in the theological realm, really, there's no such thing as worship music. All worship, all music could be either worship music or not. Classical music could be worship music if it's done for the right reason <laughs> in the response and to honor and to glorify God. But music that isn't directed towards God that isn't in response to God is going to be leading us to worship something else. Because all worship is worship music. I'm convinced of this. So does the music that you're listening to worship God? Or does it worship Satan? That, that, that's the reality. What music is extremely powerful. It moves people. It gets people to do things. Number six, biblical worship includes our work and our service. Remember the words work and service. The term here is abide. And it's not because work is bad. It has nothing to do with that. Abide means to work, to serve, or to worship. This term refers to any work or task carried out as well as to worship or service done to God. And again, here, I, I like what John Stott says about this. He says, It is significant that the Hebrew has one word to denote work, service, and worship. In biblical thought, there is no watertight division between daily work and the adoration of God. In the very first pages of the Bible, manual, activity, and service of the Creator are inseparably linked. Everything which the believer which the believers do can and ought to be an act of worship carried out to the honor of God. And we don't just worship God when we're here at church. We don't just worship God when we're doing spiritual activities. We're to worship God in everything. 
We're to worship God when we're at home. We're to worship God when we're at church. We're to worship God when we're at work. We're to worship God on our way to work. We're to worship God when we're having leisure time with our friends. Every single thing that we do is meant to be an act of worship. Psalm 100, verse 2, Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful singing. So we see that we have six different words here that kind of describe six different aspects of what worship is. Now, it's kind of hard to define worship, right? When I ask that, that question on a discipleship groups, you know, what is worship? It's kind of hard to answer that. Uh, last week in our groups, we had a discussion about holiness, right? We were talking about Isaiah chapter 6, and it was, what is holiness? That question came up. And there was different ideas thrown out about holiness. Some people said, oh, holiness is a separation. It's being set apart from God. It's being being distinct. Some people say, no, it's, it's, it's being used by God, right? Being uh, you know, set apart for God's use is the idea. Other people said, no, it had to do with, with purity, you know, being morally pure. And, and, and there's these discussions about what holiness is. Now, all of those things are true. And if you just say one of them, it's incomplete, right? Because really, holiness is, is, is all of that. Right? It's being set apart. It's being you know, set apart for God's use. It's being morally pure, things like that. Uh, and, and the same thing is true of worship. Right? We could take one of these words and say that is worship, and that would be true. But really, worship is, is all of these things. It encompasses all of it. We don't want to get reductionalistic and just say, hey, it's just one of these. It's, it's all of these aspects combined. And so when we combine all of these things, we see that with just about every part of our body and just about everything that we could do, we could worship God. And that's why the New Testament says no matter what you do, whether you eat or drink or whether you're working or whether you're awake, whatever you do, do it through the glory of Christ. Do it through Christ, right? Do it as an act of worship. Right? Because everything can be done for worship. That, that, that's essentially why we had that uh, we call it talent camp in the summers to teach kids. No matter what talent you have, no matter what you're doing, you could do it as an act of worship. So we're going to get to part B next week. We'll finish this. Uh, I don't know what I was thinking, thinking we'd get through all of this in one night. Got a little ambitious, but that's okay. It gives us something for next week, right? So, God, I thank you. I thank you that you have created us to worship you. I pray that you would instruct us and lead us in how you want us to worship you. I pray we'd become better worshipers of you, Lord, and that we would, uh, you know, live for that purpose is is to worship you. That's what you've created us for. That's where we're going to find our greatest fulfillment and and joy and purpose in life is being worshipers of you, Lord. And I pray we wouldn't just be worshipers of you, but we would be worship leaders. We would be people that lead others to want to worship you and uh, to, to have these characteristics and attributes true about themselves too, God. So again, we thank you. We thank you for your son, who's the perfect example of what being a worshiper of God is, Lord. And so I pray that we would uh, 
see Jesus as our ultimate worship leader. We pattern our lives after him, and uh, you would use us to worship us. You Use us to worship you the way that he did. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.